Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Chapter 19 We went straight to the lake, as it was called at Bly, and I dare say rightly called, though I reflect that it may in fact have been a sheet of water less remarkable than it appeared to my untravelled eyes. My acquaintance with sheets of water was small, and the pool of Bly at all events on the few occasions of my consenting, under the protection of my pupils, to a fronted surface in the old flat-bottomed boat, moored there for our use, had impressed me both with its extent and its agitation. The usual place of embarkation was half a mile from the house, but I had the intimate conviction that wherever Flora might be, she was not near home. She had not given me the slip for any small adventure, and since the day of the very great one that I had shared with her by the pond, I had been aware in our walks of the quarter to which she most inclined. This was why I had now given to Mrs. Gross's steps so marked a direction, a direction that made her, when she perceived it, oppose a resistance that showed me she was freshly mystified. You go into the water, miss. You think she's in? She may be, though the depth is, I believe, nowhere very great, but what I judge most likely is that she's on the spot from which the other day we saw together what I told you, when she pretended not to see. With that astounding self-possession, I've always been sure she wanted to go back alone, and now her brother has managed it for her. Mrs. Gross still stood where she had stopped. You suppose they've really talked to them? I could meet this with confidence. They say things that, if we heard them, would simply appall us. And if she is there, yes, then Miss Jessel is. Beyond a doubt. You shall see. Oh, thank you, my friend cried, planted so firm that in taking it in, I went straight on without her. By the time I reached the pool, however, she was close behind me, and I knew that whatever to her apprehension might befall me, the exposure of my society struck her as least danger. She exhaled a moan of relief as we at last came in sight of the greater part of the water without a sight of the child. There was no trace of Flora on that nearer side of the bank, where my observation of her had been most startling, and none on the opposite edge where, save for a margin of some twenty yards, a thick copse came down to the water. The pond, oblong in shape, had a width so scant compared to its length that with its ends out of view it might have been taken for a scant river. We looked at the empty expanse, and then I felt the suggestion of my friend's eyes. I knew what she meant, and I replied with a negative handshake, No, no, wait, she's taken the boat. My companion stared at the vacant mooring place and then again across the lake. Then where is it? Our not seeing it is the strongest of proofs. She has used it to go over, and then has managed to hide it. All alone? That child? She's not alone, and at such times she's not a child. She's an old, old woman. I scanned all the visible shore while Mrs. Gross took again into the queer element I offered her, one of her plunges of submission. Then I pointed out that the boat might perfectly be in a small refuge formed by one of the recesses of the pool, an indentation masked for the hither side by a projection of the bank, 
and by a clump of trees growing close to the water. But if the boat's there, where on earth is she? My colleague anxiously asked. That's exactly what we must learn. And I started to walk further. By going all the way round? Certainly, far as it is. It will take us but ten minutes, but it's far enough to have made the child prefer not to walk. She went straight over. Laws, cried my friend again. The chain of my logic was ever too much for her. It dragged her at my heels even now, and when we had got halfway round, a devious, tiresome process on ground much broken, and by a path choked with overgrowth, I paused to give her breath. I sustained her with a grateful arm, assuring her that she might hugely help me, and this started us afresh, so that in the course of but a few minutes more, we reached a point from which we found the boat to be where I had supposed it. It had been intentionally left as much as possible out of sight, and was tied to one of the stakes of a fence that came just there, down to the brink, and that had been an assistance to disembarking. I recognised, as I looked at the pair of short, thick oars quite safely drawn up, the prodigious character of the feet for a little girl, but I had lived by this time too long among wonders, and had panted to too many livelier measures. There was a gate in the fence, through which we passed, and had brought us after a trifling interval more into the open. Then, there she is, we both exclaimed at once. Flora, a short way off, stood before us on the grass and smiled, as if her performance was now complete. The next thing she did, however, was to stoop straight down and pluck, quite as if it were all she was there for, a big, ugly spray of withered fern. I instantly became sure she had just come out of the copse. She waited for us, not herself taking a step, and I was conscious of the rare solemnity with which we presently approached her. She smiled and smiled, and we met, but it was all done in a silence by this time flagrantly ominous. Mrs. Gross was the first to break the spell. She threw herself on her knees and drawing the child to her breast clasped in a long embrace the little tender yielding body. While this dumb convulsion lasted I could only watch it, which I did the more intently when I saw Flora's face peep at me over our companion's shoulder. It was serious now. The flicker had left it. But it strengthened the pang with which I at that moment envied Mrs. Gross the simplicity of her relation. Still, all this while, Nothing more passed between us save that Flora had let her foolish fern again drop to the ground. What she and I had virtually said to each other was that pretexts were useless now. When Mrs. Gross finally got up she kept the child's hand so that the two were still before me, and the singular reticence of our communion was even more marked in the frank look she launched me. I'll be hanged, it said, if I'll speak. It was Flora who, gazing all over me in candid wonder, was the first. She was struck with our bareheaded aspect. Why, where are your things? Where are yours, my dear? I promptly returned. She had already got back her gaiety and appeared to take this as an answer quite sufficient. And where's Miles? she went on. There was something in the small valour of it that quite finished me. These three words from her were in a flash like the glitter of a drawn blade, the jostle of the cup, 
that my hand for weeks and weeks had held high and full to the brim, that now, even before speaking, I felt overflow in a deluge. I'll tell you if you tell me, I heard myself say, then heard the tremor in which it broke. Well, what? Mrs. Gross's suspense blazoned at me, but it was too late now, and I brought the thing out handsomely. Where my pet is Miss Jessel. Chapter 20 Just as in the churchyard with Miles, the whole thing was upon us. Much as I had made of the fact that this name had never once between us been sounded, the quick, smitten glare with which the child's face now received it fairly likened my breach of the silence to the smash of a plane of glass. It added to the interposing cry as if to stay the blow that Mrs. Gross at the same instant uttered over my violence the shriek of a creature scared, or rather wounded, which, in turn within a few seconds, was completed by a gasp of my own. I seized my colleague's arm. She's there! She's there! Miss Jessel stood before us on the opposite bank, exactly as she had stood the other time. And I remember strangely, as the first feeling now produced in me, my thrill of joy at having brought on a proof. She was there, and I was justified. She was there, and I was neither cruel nor mad. She was there, for poor scared Mrs. Gross, but she was there most for Flora. And no moment of my monstrous time was perhaps so extraordinary as that in which I consciously threw out at her, with the sense that pale and ravenous demon as she was, she would catch and understand it. An inarticulate message of gratitude. She rose erect on the spot my friend and I had lately quitted, and there was not, in all the long reach of her desire, an inch of her evil that fell short. This first vividness of vision and emotion were things of a few seconds, during which Mrs. Gross's dazed blink across to where I pointed struck me as a sovereign sign that she too at last saw, just as it carried my own eyes precipitately to the child. The revelation then of the manner in which Flora was affected startled me. In truth, far more than it would have done to find her also merely agitated, for direct dismay was of course not what I had expected. Prepared and on her guard as our pursuit had actually made her, she would repress every betrayal, and I was therefore shaken on the spot by my first glimpse of the particular one for which I had not allowed. To see her, without a convulsion of her small pink face, not even feign to glance in the direction of the prodigy I announced, but only, instead of that, turn at me an expression of hard, still gravity, an expression absolutely new and unprecedented, and that appeared to read and accuse and judge me. This was a stroke that somehow converted the little girl herself into the very presence that could make me quail. I quailed, even though my certitude that she thoroughly saw was never greater than at that instant, and in the immediate need to defend myself I called it passionately to witness, she's there, you unhappy little thing, there, 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 and you see her as well as you see me. I had said shortly before to Mrs. Gross that she was not at these times a child, but an old, old woman and that description of her could not have been more strikingly confirmed than in the way in which, for all answer to this, she simply showed me, without a concession, an admission of her eyes, a countenance of deeper and deeper, 
of indeed suddenly quite fixed reprobation. I was by this time, if I can put the whole thing at all together, more appalled at what I may properly call her manner than at anything else, though it was simultaneously with this that I became aware of having Mrs. Gross also, and very formidably to reckon with. My elder companion, the next moment at any rate, blotted out everything but her own flushed face and her loud, shocked protest, a burst of high disapproval. What a dreadful turn to be sure, Miss. Where on earth do you see anything? I could only grasp her more quickly yet, for even while she spoke, the hideous plain presence stood undimmed and undaunted. It had already lasted a minute, and it lasted while I continued seizing my colleague, quite thrusting her at it, and presenting her to it, to insist with my pointing hand, You don't see her exactly as we see. You mean to say you don't now? Now? She's as big as a blazing fire. Only look, dearest woman, look! She looked, even as I did, and gave me, with her deep groan of negation, repulsion, compassion, the mixture with her pity of her relief at her exemption, a sense touching to me even then that she would have backed me up if she could. I might well have needed that, for with this hard blow of the proof that her eyes were hopelessly sealed, I felt my own situation horribly crumble. I felt, I saw my livid predecessor pass from her position on my defeat, and I was conscious more than all of what I should have from this instant to deal with in the astounding little attitude of Flora. Into this attitude, Mrs. Gross immediately and violently entered, breaking, even while there pierced through my sense of ruin, a prodigious private triumph, into breathless reassurance. She isn't there, little lady, and nobody's there, and you never see nothing, my sweet. How can poor Miss Jessel, when poor Miss Jessel's dead and buried? We know, don't we, love? And she appealed, blundering into the child. It's all a mere mistake and a worry and a joke. We'll all go home as fast as we can. Our companion on this had responded with a strange, quick primness of propriety, and they were again with Mrs. Gross on her feet, united, as it were, in pained opposition to me. Flora continued to fix me with her small mask of reprobation, and even at that minute I prayed God to forgive me for seeming to see that. As she stood there holding tight to our friend's dress, her incomparable childish beauty had suddenly failed, had quite vanished. I've said it already, she was literally, she was hideously hard. She had turned common and almost ugly. I don't know what you mean. I see nobody. I see nothing. I never have. I think you're cruel. I don't like you. Then, after this deliverance, which might have been that of a vulgarly pert little girl on the street, she hugged Mrs. Gross more closely and buried in her skirts the dreadful little face. In this position, she produced an almost furious wail. Take me away, take me away, oh, take me away from her. From me, I panted. From you, from you, she cried. Even Mrs. Gross looked across at me dismayed. While I had nothing to do but communicate again with the figure that, on the opposite bank, without a movement, as rigidly still as if catching beyond the interval our voices, was as vividly there for my disaster as it was not there for my service. The wretched child had spoken exactly as if she had got from some outside source each of her stabbing little words, and I could therefore, in the full despair of all I had to accept, 
but sadly shake my head at her. If I had ever doubted, all my doubt would at present have gone. I've been living with the miserable truth, and now it has only too much closed around me. Of course, I've lost you. I've interfered and you've seen under her dictation, with which I faced over the pool again our infernal witness, the easy and perfect way to meet it. I've done my best, but I've lost you. Goodbye. For Mrs. Gross, I had an imperative, an almost frantic, Go! Go! Before which, in infinite distress, but mutely possessed of the little girl, and clearly convinced, in spite of her blindness, that something awful had occurred, and some collapse engulfed us, she retreated by the way we had come, as fast as she could move. Of what first happened when I was left alone, I had no subsequent memory. I only knew that at the end of it, I suppose, a quarter of an hour, an odorous dampness and roughness, chilling and piercing my trouble, had made me understand that I must have thrown myself on my face, on the ground, and given way to a wildness of grief. I must have lain there long and cried and sobbed, for when I raised my head, the day was almost done. I got up and looked a moment through the twilight at the grey pool and its blank haunted edge, and then I took back to the house my dreary and difficult course. When I reached the gate in the fence, the boat, to my surprise, was gone, so that I had a fresh reflection to make on Flora's extraordinary command of the situation. She passed that night by the most tacit, and I should add, were not the words so grotesque a false note, the happiest of arrangements with Mrs. Gross. I saw neither of them on my return, but, on the other hand, as by an ambiguous compensation, I saw a great deal of miles. I saw, I can use no other phrase, so much of him that it was as if it were more than it had ever been. No evening I had passed at Bly had the portentous quality of this one, in spite of which, and in spite also of the deeper depths of consternation that had opened beneath my feet, there was literally, in the ebbing actual, an extraordinarily sweet sadness. On reaching the house, I had never so much as looked for the boy. I had simply gone straight to my room to change what I was wearing and to take in at a glance much material testimony to Flora's rupture. Her little belongings had all been removed. When later, by the schoolroom fire, I was served with tea by the usual maid, I indulged on the article of my other pupil in no inquiry whatever. He had his freedom now. He might have it to the end. Well, he did have it, and it consisted, in part at least, of his coming in at about eight o'clock and sitting down with me in silence. On the removal of the tea-things I had blown out the candles and drawn my chair closer, I was conscious of a mortal coldness and felt as if I should never again be warm. So when he appeared I was sitting in the glow with my thoughts. He paused a moment by the door as if to look at me. Then, as if to share them, came to the other side of the hearth and sank into a chair. We sat there in absolute stillness, yet he wanted, I felt, to be with me. Chapter 21 Before a new day in my room had fully broken, 
my eyes opened to Mrs. Gross, who had come to my bedside with worse news. Flora was so markedly feverish that an illness was perhaps at hand. She had passed a night of extreme unrest, a night agitated above all by fears that had for their subject not in the least her former, but wholly her present, governess. It was not against the possible re-entrance of Miss Jessel on the scene that she protested. It was conspicuously and passionately against mine. I was promptly on my feet, of course, and with an immense deal to ask, the more that my friend had discernibly now girded her loins to meet me once more. This I felt as soon as I had put to her the question of her sense of the child's sincerity as against my own. She persists in denying to you that she saw or has ever seen anything. My visitor's trouble truly was great. Ah, miss, it isn't a matter on which I can push her. Yet it isn't either, I must say, as if I much needed to. It has made her, every inch of her, quite old. Oh, I see perfectly from here. She resents for all the world like some high little personage, the imputation on her truthfulness and, as it were, her respectability. Miss Jessel, indeed. She. Ah, she's respectable, the chit. This impression she gave me there yesterday was, I assure you, the very strangest of all. It was quite beyond any of the others. I didn't put my foot in it. She'll never speak to me again. Hideous and obscure as it all was, it held Mrs. Gross briefly silent. Then she granted my point with a frankness which I made sure had more behind it. I, I think indeed, miss, she never will. She do have a grand manner about it. And that manner, I summed it up, is practically what's the matter with her now. On that manner, I could see in my visitor's face and not a little else besides. She asks me every three minutes if I think you're coming in. I see, I see. I too, on my side, had so much more than worked it out. Has she said to you since yesterday, except to repudiate her familiarity with anything so dreadful, a single other word about Miss Jessel? Not one, miss. And of course, you know, my friend added, I took it from her by the lake that just then and there at least, there was nobody. Rather, and naturally, you take it from her still. I don't contradict her. What else can I do? Nothing in the world. You're the cleverest little person to deal with. They've made them, their two friends, I mean, still cleverer even than nature did, for it was wondrous material to play on. Flora now has her grievance and she'll work it to the end. Yes, miss, but to what end? Why, that of dealing with me to her uncle. She'll make me out to him the lowest creature. I winced at the fair show of the scene in Mrs. Gross's face. She looked for a minute as if she sharply saw them together. And him who thinks so well of you. He has an odd way. It comes over me now, I laughed, of proving it. But that doesn't matter. What Flora wants, of course, is to get rid of me. My companion bravely concurred, never again to so much as look at you. So that what you've come to me for now, I asked, is to speed me on my way. Before she had time to reply, however, I had her in check. I have a better idea, the result of my reflections. My going would seem the right thing, and on Sunday I was terribly near it. Yet that won't do. It's you who must go. You must take Flora. My visitor at this did speculate. But where in the world? Away from here, away from them. Away even, most of all, now, from me. Straight to her uncle. Only to tell on you, no, not only, to leave me in addition with my remedy. 
She was still vague. And what is your remedy? Your loyalty to begin with, and then Miles's. She looked at me hard. Do you think he won't, if he has the chance, turn on me? Yes, I venture still to think it. At all events, I want to try. Get off with his sister as soon as possible and leave me with him alone. I was amazed myself at the spirit I still had in reserve, and therefore perhaps a trifle the more disconcerted at the way in which, in spite of this fine example of it, she hesitated. There's one thing, of course, I went on, they mustn't, before she goes, see each other for three seconds. Then it came over me that in spite of Flora's presumable sequestration from the instant of her return from the pool, it might already be too late. Do you mean, I anxiously asked, that they have met? At this she quite flushed. Oh, miss, I'm not such a fool as that. If I've been obliged to leave her three or four times, it has been each time with one of the maids, and at present, though she's alone, she's locked in safe. And yet, and yet, there were too many things. And yet what? Well, are you so sure of the little gentleman? I'm not sure of anything but you. But I have since last evening a new hope. I think he wants to give me an opening. I do believe that poor little exquisite wretch, he wants to speak. Last evening in the firelight and the silence he sat with me for two hours, as if it were just coming. Mrs. Gross looked hard through the window at the grey gathering day. And... Did it come? No. Though I waited and waited, I confess it didn't, and it was without a breach of the silence or so much as a faint allusion to his sister's condition and absence that we last kissed for good night. All the same, I continued, I can't, if her uncle sees her, consent to his seeing her brother without my having given the boy, and most of all because things have got so bad, a little more time. My friend appeared on this ground more reluctant than I could quite understand. What do you mean by more time? Well, a day or two, really, to bring it out. He'll then be on my side, of which you see the importance. If nothing comes, I shall only fail, and you will, at the worst, have helped me by doing, on your arrival in town, whatever you may have found possible. So I put it before her, but she continued for a little so inscrutably embarrassed that I came again to her aid, unless indeed I wound up. You really want not to go. I could see it in her face at last clear itself. She put her hand to me as a pledge. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go this morning. I wanted to be very just. If you should wish still to wait, I would engage she shouldn't see me. No, no, it's the place itself. She must leave it. She held me a moment with heavy eyes and brought out the rest. Your idea's the right one. I myself miss. Well? I can't stay. The look she gave me with it made me jump at possibilities. You mean it since yesterday you have seen? She shook her head with dignity. I've heard. Heard? From that child. Horrors. There, she sighed with tragic relief. Oh, my honour, miss, she says things. But at this evocation she broke down. She dropped with a sudden sob upon my sofa, and, as I had seen her do before, gave way to all the grief of it. It was quite in another manner that I, for my part, let myself go. Oh, thank God. She sprang up again at this, drying her eyes with a groan. Thank God. It so justifies me. It does that, miss. I couldn't have desired more emphasis, but I just hesitated. She's so horrible. 
I saw my colleague scarce knew how to put it. Really shocking. And about me? About you, miss, since you must have it. It's beyond everything for a young lady. And I can't think wherever she must have picked it up. The appalling language she applied to me. I can, then. I broke in with a laugh that was doubtless significant enough. It only in truth left my friend still more grave. Well, perhaps I ought to also, since I've heard some of it before. Yet I can't bear it. The poor woman went on a while with the same movement she glanced over on my dressing table at the face of my watch. But I must go back. I kept her, however. Ah, if you can't bear it. How can I stop with her, you mean? Why, just for that, to get her away, far from this, she pursued. Far from them. She may be different. She may be free. I seized her almost with joy. Then, in spite of yesterday, you believe in such doings. A simple description of them required in the light of her expression to be carried no further, and she gave me the whole thing as she had never done. I believe. Yes, it was a joy, and we were still shoulder to shoulder. If I might continue sure of that, I should care but little what else happened. My support in the presence of disaster would be the same as it had been in my early need of confidence, and if my friend would answer for my honesty, I would answer for all the rest. On the point of taking leave of her, nonetheless, I was to some extent embarrassed. There's one thing, of course, it occurs to me, to remember. My letter giving the alarm will have reached town before you. I now perceived still more how she had been beating about the bush and how weary at last it had made her. Your letter won't have got there. Your letter never went. What then became of it? Goodness knows. Master Miles. Do you mean he took it? I gasped. She hung fire, but she overcame her reluctance. I mean that I saw yesterday when I came back with Miss Flora that it wasn't where you had put it. Later in the evening... I had the chance to question Luke, and he declared that he had neither noticed nor touched it. We could only exchange on this one of our deeper mutual soundings, and it was Mrs. Gross who first brought up the plum with the almost elated, You see? Yes, I see that if Miles took it instead, he probably would have read it and destroyed it. And don't you see anything else? I faced her a moment with a sad smile. It strikes me that by this time your eyes are open even wider than mine. They proved to be so indeed, but she could still blush almost to show it. I make out now what he must have done at school, and she gave in her simple sharpness an almost droll, disillusioned nod. He stole. I turned it over. I tried to be more judicial. Well, perhaps. She looked as if she found me unexpectedly calm. He stole letters. She couldn't know my reasons for a calmness after all pretty shallow. So I showed them off as I might. I hope then it was to more purpose than in this case. The note at any rate that I put on the table yesterday, I pursued, will have given him so scant an advantage. For it only contained the bare demand for an interview that he is already much ashamed of having gone so far for so little, and that what he had on his mind last evening was precisely the need of confession. I seemed to myself for the instant to have mastered it, to see it all. Leave us, leave us. I was already at the door hurrying her off. I'll get it out of him. He'll meet me. He'll confess. If he confesses, he's saved. And if he's saved, then you are. The dear woman kissed me on this and I took her farewell. I'll save you without him, she cried as she went. 
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody so come back, don't Isn't that Everybody so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? you tried How do the dead come back, well, that was the penultimate part of The Turn of the Screw. I've only got three chapters to do now, and I'm going to try and do them tomorrow night. So by the time I record them, edit them, etc., etc. So you should have them within a few days. Now, um, that is if you're on Substack or on Patreon. If you're on just the general podcast system, Apple or uh, Deezer or you know Spotify, then they're coming out. I do want to get them all done before the end of November 2020. So, because I can, I've got some other things I want to do. Okay. I don't want to go on too much because I, I guess people will be listening to these back to back. And if you really just want to get on with the story, you don't want this bloke going on. All I want to say is that um, a couple of things. First of all, what I think I know I've been very cruel about James's language. And I do think as the story's going on, it's getting simpler, or maybe I'm just getting used to it. But in any case, um, I, th- I thought a masterstroke, there were a couple in the, these bits, these three chapters we've just done, was Mrs. Gross. So, you know, they, Mrs. Gross is this, he, he draws it so well. She's this placid, passive, well-meaning woman, and she's she kind of flustered. She doesn't know what to do. Here's this governess who's very bright, and she's drawn, um, sorry, torn between her duty for the children, and she's led by the governess, you know. And uh, she goes with her out in the middle of nowhere against her better judgment, I think, and she's a bit scared. And then the, the, the key turns in the lock when um, she, she comforts Flora. And she's, well, you know, of course, it's just a joke. Of course, it can't be. And you just see underneath the shell of her wanting to please the governess is her sensible, you know, down-to-earth view of these things. We think the same thing. And that moment for me turns the story. You know, okay, it is uh, reinforced by the fact that um, Mrs. Gross can't see Jessel across the lake, and Flora, if she can see, denies it. So we don't know the status of Flora and Miles now. And now, whereas he's led us along the garden path as a ghost story, and we're thinking, oh, well, you know, yeah, this is a ghost story. These things happen in ghost story. If, if your mate told you this, you'd be like, Maybe, but because it's in the form of the ghost story, the genre of the ghost story, we we take it. Yeah, ghosts can appear. Of course they can. And now, just that little twist, we're now thinking that that this woman, the governess, is starting to appear increasingly paranoid. You know, she's is she delusional? She's hallucinating. She has these absolutely unshakable beliefs. It never occurs to her to doubt her senses, I don't think. I, I don't think I've missed that. So if you are ultimately convinced that these are spectres, then the children must be liars and must be malevolent. So we go from the beginning where she idolized them as little angels, beautiful little angels. And don't forget that great confusion arising with the Greeks of the beautiful with the good. If you were beautiful, you were good. Okay. Uh, we, we don't think that anymore, but certainly it's a current in Western civilization, and we see beautiful little angels, and now they're demonic almost. They're in league with these evil spirits, and we see the children completely through her eyes at the beginning as angels. Far too black and white, really. What Can any child be as perfect 
as she saw them to begin with. And can any child, a little girl and boy, be so conniving? I'm not saying they can't, but it's unlikely. And in, when I used to do um, uh, family therapy, we, we would often find a family would come in and the family would sit around and one member of the family would be blamed and scapegoated for, you know, everybody would be like, well, we're fine, it's just her, you know. And this person carried the sin for the family, if you like. And so it's almost like, and the reason I'm saying that is, often they would come and there would be infants and they would portray these infants as, as de- devilish and demonic and full of evil. And, uh, you know, that just, it's, it's unlikely to be true. The child is not developed enough that, to be a moral being. And is that in, in this case, is that true? They are small children. They're coming to an age when they can know right from wrong. Absolutely. But really, you know, so I think this flip, we see through her eyes, the children from angels to demons, and they feel, what he's good at is they actually start to feel sinister. They have a, an unpleasant air about them now through her eyes. So, I mean, the little girl would be, would not want to see this governess who's accusing her of all sorts of things on the, uh, so is she crazy? Is she, you know, I'm sorry to use such a term, but is she um, delusional? On the other hand, what is the kid doing? Taking a boat out. I mean, kids do. I, I did these things. So did Wordsworth, in fact, you know. So stealing a boat across the lake, picking up a piece of withered old fern. Kids do these things. But it is a bit weird, the kids keeping, to go, keeping going out. So he, he, he has this dithering on the balance between is the governess, who, who is unnamed, I think. I can't bring her name to mind. Um, is she delusional and paranoid? Or is, uh, are the children, in fact, speaking to ghosts? evil ghosts as well, and conniving and colluding with them. On balance, it would seem it's more likely that the governess is mentally ill, isn't it? But this is a ghost story after all. So, so it's good that he does this. He does this very, very well. You can see why this story is considered a classic. Was there anything else I was going to say? No, there wasn't. Call to action. Okay, uh, hop along to Substack. Links, links, links on the show notes. Download a free story of mine. Anyway, onward we go. The next bit is the last bit. 